It looks like Mike DeWine will be talking about children in schools at his coronavirus briefing today. We'll have to see where that goes, given where what the president said yesterday about children not getting the coronavirus. It's This Week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I am here with colleagues Laura Johnston and Jane Cahoon. It's a Tuesday in Cleveland with lots of news to talk about. Let's get to it. How is prominent Cleveland businessman Tony George tied to both Larry Householder, the disgraced former House Speaker, and First Energy, the utility at the center of the Householder scandal? Laura Johnson, this was a hell of a story yesterday by John Caniglia that tied together Tony George to a bunch of things related to First Energy, Larry Householder, and a little bit Cleveland Public Power. So set the stage. What, what do we know? Yeah, this is a jaw dropper. Tony George and his family have given $120,000 in contributions to Householder over the past four years. This was as Householder returned to state politics, rose in power to become the Speaker of the Ohio House. Uh, You might know his name. Um, He owns a number of businesses, including Harry Buffalo downtown. His son owns Town Hall, which has been in the news for mass complaints lately. But he's given a lot of money to politicians from both parties. And in 2016, he wrote this letter to the editor in, uh, in The Plain Dealer urging residents and the paper's editorial board and cleveland.com's editorial board to back this push to save First Energy. George wouldn't discuss Householder. He said, I don't care to speculate about anyone else, but he he's clearly kind of embroiled in this. Um, what's interesting is then he led the charge to downsize city council last year, um, the number of council members. Well, and, the, and what's interesting about that is he applied through one of his companies to be a energy aggregator in Cleveland, didn't get the contract. And Mm -hmm. there were people that said he's, he's trying to reduce council play on the populist vote to get even for that. And so that thing was marching to the ballot and all of a sudden it kind of blew up in his face. There were a whole lot of people that came out saying, this is reducing democracy. This is disenfranchising voters. And he ran, ran away from it and pulled it. But John's story pointed out that if he had gotten that contract, his provider would have been a First Energy subsidiary. So mm-hmm. so that whole council reduction effort now looks like it may have been related to First Energy, too. So it's a yeah. great story, putting, putting Tony George kind of in the center of the householder First Energy sphere. Uh, and I'm I'm curious to see where that goes. The, the investigation continues. There's rumors of more arrests. Um, no, it, we should point out Tony George has not been implicated, mentioned in any way in the court documents involving Householder. He's not accused of anything. Uh, John's story was just tying him to the whole. Right. Thing. And then there's this other weird tie in that in 2016, he gave a thousand dollar contribution to then Ohio Senator Tom Sawyer, and he listed his it, his uh, employer as First Energy. Yeah, oops. <laughs> <laughs> like, wait, <what>? <laughs> <laughs> that was a big oopsie, I think. I don't think, I mean, he must have been working as a lobbyist or something for him, but I think everybody looks back at that now and thinks, oh, we probably should not have done that. Yeah. So anyway, re- check out John's story. It's a, it's a good piece that ties a lot of things together. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What percentage of Ohio teachers feel comfortable returning to the classroom during the coronavirus pandemic. Jane Cahoon, this is this was a pretty big survey of Ohio teachers. 
And there weren't a whole lot of people that seemed like they want to go back to school. What's the, what do the numbers say? Well, the numbers say that only 8% of the teachers surveyed here felt comfortable returning to school full-time during this pandemic, although it did show they're also really concerned about students and the, the consequences of distance learning on students. I, this was an Ohio Federation of Teachers survey of about 17, 1,700 teachers, and uh, about 66% of them said they would be most comfortable with full-time distance learning either until the COVID cases decline significantly or for the full fall semester. It's amazing how this has evolved if you look at the whole cycle. Back in March, the governors who moved quickly to close schools were hailed as brilliant because schools would be where the virus spreads. And as we moved along and parents got sick of keeping their kids at home and people worried about the education of the, the remotely because it really wasn't working well, there became this movement to get them to go back to school. So by by early summer, we were headed to schools opening. But man, over the past month, that has completely collapsed. The Cuyahoga Board of Health recommended they stay closed and one district after another has voted to do so. Bay Village last night decided they would start remotely and reassess every couple of weeks, but their standards for coming back now are pretty hard to meet. And then yesterday, the Summit Health Department said, yeah, we think all schools should stay closed. <laughs> this is breaking right. Laura Johnston's heart because she's been <laughs> the, in favor of schools opening. But but this movement, I, it, it seems like we're coming full circle back to what are we thinking? You bring a bunch of kids back to school, of course the virus is going to spread and the teachers would be on the front lines, which this clearly showed. Who did the survey and did they talk to a lot of teachers? It, it was the Ohio Federation of Teachers, the union that represents, um, it actually encompasses 55 unions with about 22,000 members and they got over 1,700 teachers to participate in in this survey. It was interesting because also, you know, not only were they not comfortable with, with full-time in-person instruction, but they, they, a lot of them, a majority anyway, were, were unsure or, or they disagreed or strongly disagreed with the plans in their individual school districts. They didn't seem to have a lot of faith uh, that, that schools could appropriately prepare for this. Well, and part of that is because of the government leaders. The messaging on schools was so mixed. School districts had a hard time figuring out what to do. It seems pretty clear that most schools, especially in Northeast Ohio, will not be open to start the year. So, Laura Johnston, do you think a lot of parents are working harder to set up little education areas in their homes now? I mean, in March, they didn't have a whole lot of time to prepare when schools close. But, you know, for instance, what are you doing to set your kids up to remote learn? Oh, well, that's a good question. <laughs> I actually talked to my daughter about putting putting her on my schedule for the day at like 1030 and 130 to have check-ins with me. <laughs> I, I, I gave her a, a whiteboard. She's, she's much more focused than I am. My son, it's going to be, we have to ride him harder to make sure he's not on YouTube. But uh, I, I got her a whiteboard for her room. They have desks in their room. I was really impressed with what the parents did in the, the spring, how many people set up classrooms in a, in a area of their house if they could. Um, I think we're feeling a little bit better. Just talking for myself, the plans that I'm seeing are less like, here's a list of assignments to do with Google Forms and Google Slides and drag and drop this and more. 
we're actually going to have instruction through the computer. Um, so that makes me feel a little bit better. And, and they have acknowledged that there are kids that need private one-on-one contact with their teachers. And they're going to try to figure out how to do that. Because before it was just like a giant Zoom call once a week with your class and a whole list of videos to watch and forms to fill out. So I think it's got to be better than that. Oh, see, my wife's a special ed teacher. She was doing one-on-ones then. But I think you're right. You do get the sense that with a little bit of time to think this through, they've come up with better systems so that maybe it'll work better than it did in the spring. When I think most people would agree, it was not a successful teaching method. I still wonder what parents like you were going to do because I don't know how you do your job full-time while having kids in the house that you've got to you got to move along. I, like I told Jane before, like I just yell a lot. That's just <laughs> what I do. <laughs> okay. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Did First Energy seek to use its muscle and money to destroy Cleveland public power, the city-owned electric utility? Laura Johnston, Cleveland City Council made a pretty dramatic move yesterday to get to the bottom of that question what do we know yeah we they i mean we don't know anything yet right but but they could be using their subpoena power to find out what's going on um and it you know they have a lot of hearings in cleveland city council but they don't often use the subpoena power they would need the mayor's backing but they expect to have that so president calvin kelly says he feels an obligation to investigate because if you peel House Bill 6 back, it had a harmful effect on the city of Cleveland. So they want to compel production of documents, take some testimony, and um, see if there was anything diabolical going on. I think they use the word destroy, was First Energy setting out to destroy uh, Cleveland public power. Um, That has about 70,000 customers in the city, and they were affected by all of this. I, I I did find it questionable that the mayor has to approve because I remember there was an investigation like this 20 years ago into the uh, tests they used for police and fire. And the, the mayor wasn't in favor of doing that investigation and they did it anyway. So I wasn't sure why the mayor's needed. They do have this interesting power where they can do these independent investigations. I mean, we actually complain that city council fails to do its oversight duty pretty much every chance it it can. It still hasn't done it on the May 30th riot. So it was interesting to see the aggressiveness of this. But given what we've learned in Columbus about how First Energy appears to operate, this could be a fascinating insight into the way they have tried to be predatory with with competitors. They've wanted in from the beginning. Jane Cahoon, do you think Dennis Kucinich might have a view on this? <laughs> We're still waiting for that, you know, 500-page book to come out to tell us the story there about Cleveland Public Power. But that, I... that goes all the way back to when, yeah. when First Energy was trying to take it out then. And I'm so sure are they repeating itself. Say. Laura? I was just going to say, what's really interesting is how they are uh, positing that that First Energy could have affected Cleveland Public Power because remember when House Bill Six not only bailed like bailed out the nuclear plants, but it got rid of these green energy requirements that the state had set up. And uh, Cleveland Public Power had been working diligently to meet those goals, and so that cost extra money. And they've got like six hundred thousand renewable energy credits that are now worthless 
because they don't need them anymore. So that hurt ratepayers. I mean, that's tangible money out of the pockets of people who live in Cleveland. And, you know, that's something I don't think has been a huge part of the conversation. Well, it's subpoena power. So they can force people to come in and get them to ask, answer questions. They, when they did it 20 years ago, they did it in the big council chamber. It had a great deal of pageantry to it. So go get them. It'll be interesting to see what they learn. It's this week in the CLE. Well, unemployed people in Ohio get some extra money from the federal government to help tide them over during the coronavirus pandemic. Jane Cahoon, we talked about this yesterday. Mike DeWine was looking to see whether Ohio could afford to kick in some extra cash to go along with the money Donald Trump offered through executive order. We have resolution now. What's going to happen? Well, I I don't know if I'd call it resolution, Chris. I mean, first of all, I should back up and say the $600 extra in federal unemployment benefits that people were getting, that expired at the end of July. So that's why you know, uh, they're talking about some way to bridge this gap while Congress continues to talk about it. In any event, Governor Mike DeWine's administration apparently agreed to this plan proposed by the White House that would give them an extra $300 a week in, in federal unemployment benefits without the state having to chip in that extra 100 bucks that we talked about yesterday. Um, and this would be in addition to people's regular unemployment that they get from the state. But there, there are just so many questions surrounding this that make me skeptical of the, of the whole thing for, for a few reasons here. They're, they're still seeking guidance from the Department of Labor on how they would implement, and, and the timetable is, is not clear at all, you know, how long it would take to release these funds, which they're supposed to come from this FEMA disaster relief fund and and get this, it, it would require some software changes to the state's unemployment computer <laughs> system. So yeah, well, then that's not happening. No may, money coming. May I say more about that that system, which is you know so messed up? And then a lot of people are saying that what Trump's doing here, even though he's purports to be trying to find a solution to this problem, that that it's unconstitutional because the White House doesn't control the person strings and Congress does. So they could yet come up with with some kind of an agreement, although, you know, last I saw it didn't they they weren't really they were still pretty far apart. So, you know, we'll just have to see what happens. Steve Mnuchin said last night that the money will be available in two weeks. I think Trump is defying the Congress to sue him to stop it. I mean, they're probably right that he does not have the power to do it. But who's going to stand up to say, yeah, we don't want people to have that $300. It's an interesting <laughs> right. political it, gambit. The kind president. of um, nudge them maybe in their negotiations, as you pointed that out yesterday. Yeah, to get the to get the deal done. So, all right. So not, not much resolution, but DeWine, if the money's available, has said he'll take it. He's just not going to kick in the extra 100 bucks. Yeah, they the can't president. afford that. Yeah, okay. All right, you're listening this week in the CLE. Why are 600 guns seized by Cleveland police sitting untested while crimes they might be involved in go unprosecuted and unsolved? Lord Johnston, Adam Faris had this eye opener yesterday. This all comes down to kind of a stupid spat. Yeah, it does. It seems pretty petty. The county medical examiner was doing these operability tests, making sure guns could fire and checking out the bullets. But when the coronavirus hit, two technicians went on medical leave because of the virus, and the office said they could no longer perform the tests. So the guns have been sitting there ever since. 
Police did not make alternative plans to test these guns for four months. And since you need a test to secure an indictment or conviction in a gun crime case, uh, you need to link these guns to other uh, and you need to link the guns to other unsolved crimes. It's really hurting investigations and prosecutions. The delay has held up 138 criminal cases, and that ranges from shootings and robberies to felons arrested in possession of a weapon. And that's all while there's a rise in gun violence in Cleveland. The test we're talking about is is kind of at the center of the dispute. It's not it's not a uh, ballistics test. It's not the kind of thing that you need microscopes for. It's just a simple test to find out if the gun works, like right. like if it functions. And the the contract the city has with the medical examiner is for forensic tests of guns. So the medical examiner is saying, yeah, that's not a forensic test. So the police can do that. They just need a witness. So mm-hmm. we're not doing it. And the police are saying, no, 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 you have to do all the gun tests. <laughs> so they've done nothing. And and like you said, there's a bunch of prosecutions that are just sitting on, I guess, just sitting. Nobody's nobody's right. going anywhere. I, I don't get it. I, I mean, this seems like it's a simple thing. And if if you're the prosecutor, Michael O'Malley, you would think you would get the sheriff's office to do it or something. I mean, anybody in law enforcement can do this test. Does it look like there's going to be any resolution to this? Well, they they say to Adam that they've come up with a temporary solution, but they haven't told us what that is. What I think is really interesting is they have to use a firing range. And I guess there's one in the basement of the medical examiner's office, but it's so small, you cannot socially distance and have two people in there at the same time. So they can't they can't do it and be responsible about the coronavirus. I guess there's a much bigger um, firing range in Cleveland in the police department, but they don't want to do it. So in the first three months of the year, the medical examiner's office did 324 tests. There have been a few done. There's been 70 guns tested in April, May, and June. So somebody's getting it done somewhere for super important cases, it sounds like. But yeah, we don't know what the solution is yet. You know, it sounds like the kind of thing you could put all these guns into a chest, take them over to the police station, you know, have some guys there, plow through hundreds of these things in a day, you know, certify, yes, I pulled the trigger, the bullet came out. And get them back and be done with it. It just, this seems like a a problem that would be very easy to solve, and yet people are not being prosecuted because of the uh, the conflict. It's this week in the CLE. Is it looking less likely that we will see an Ohio State Buckeyes football season this year? Jane Cahoon, I had whiplash yesterday with all of the back and forth that was going on. This it was. It looked like it was dead. It looks like it's back. I'm not sure where it stands. So take us through the gymnastics of this thing. Oh man, you you've really tossed me a hot potato here. The uh, <laughs> you know our politics reporter Seth Richardson loves these kind of stories because it's sports and politics intersecting. But anyway, the short answer is it's all up in the air. That these reports surfaced on Monday that the Big Ten had voted to cancel the football season because of the coronavirus pandemic, and this caused you know players, parents, coaches, and and yes, politicians to push back really strongly, trying to keep the season alive. But then there were all these conflicting reports that cast doubt on whether there was actually a vote or not, or whether it was an informal vote or or just what it was. But meanwhile, um, a source told Cleveland.com on Monday evening that, you know, the president of Ohio State would, would vote against can- canceling the season, that Christina Johnson, she she might agree to a postponement, but not 
a cancellation. So anyway, it's just all, it's, it's crazy. Like Ryan Day, the football coach went on ESPN and, and said, you know, there's no need to make this decision now. And, and he doesn't think it should be canceled and they, they should have flexibility for possible postponement. Um, of course, also on ESPN, we've got Stephen A. Smith, this, you know, rather controversial figure uh, who, who said they should cancel this, the, this immediately. And then, of course, he just doesn't like the way athletes, student athletes are treated. And then we had people like Congressman Jim Jordan and Lieutenant Governor John Houston weighing in saying, no, we got to have a season. And so anyway, it's just it's all crazy. Uh, we, we just, we, we don't know unless maybe in the last five minutes while we're recording this podcast something <laughs> will happen. All right. A couple of things. The source that talked to us that said that the president will vote against it. We don't usually run a story based on a single anonymous source, but I know who the source is and it's pretty ironclad. That's why we did. The, the interesting thing was when the news broke yesterday and I think one of the Detroit papers reported at first, they had to vote at 12 to 2. I mean, the, right. the, the presidents got together and voted 12 to 2. Oh. And then the Fuhrer starts and the presidents go out and say, no, 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 no there was and, no vote. There was no, and Ohio vote. wasn't one of the two. Ohio State wasn't one of the two. I think it was like Iowa and Nebraska or something like that. Yeah, yeah Nebraska is saying if they cancel the season, we're just going to go play somewhere anyway. <laughs> the but, but but so it was interesting. I, I just I wonder, OK, they didn't take a formal vote, but they all made their wishes known. But it sounds like the presidents had not really communicated with the coaches and the people in their sports departments, their athletic directors, because they were all caught by such surprise. You would think that before you get on that phone call to discuss whether there should be a season, if you're the president of OSU, you'd have a fully fledged conversation with Ryan Day so that his reaction isn't, whoa, whoa what are you talking about? You can't do that. You know, and then, of course, Jim Jordan and John Houston joining it, the, you know, the politics. Oh, and I like forgot to mention President Donald Trump also tweeted that, you know, the student athletes have worked so hard and, they, and that the season shouldn't be canceled. So right right up there yeah. at the top. I, you know, I was talking to Dave Campbell, our sports editor, about this. and The danger here for the college presidents is if a player gets sick and dies. Because how do you then justify what you've done? Is a college football season worth the life of a student player who's not getting paid to be there to give us some entertainment and, and recreation? Is it worth the, the life of a player? And of course, the answer for the presidents is going to be no. So it all comes down to risk assessment, which everything involving the coronavirus. Right. Comes down mm -hmm. to risk the players assessment. themselves seem to really want to have the season. So, I mean, they're part of this pushback. But what I think is that uh, people like Doug Maurice and Stephen Means and Nathan Baird know a lot more about this. And you should just listen to their Buckeye Talk podcast where they where they unpack this whole thing. Ooh, good plug. Yes. Buckeye Talk, <laughs> our most popular I'm podcast. I'm not the expert on this, believe me. It, it, the thing is a juggernaut. It's one of the most popular podcasts in the nation. And you can check it out wherever you get podcasts. It's this week in the CLE. What happened to a guy who parachuted into downtown Cleveland in the middle of the night and slammed into the side of a building? I love stories like this just because they are so unusual, but it's also so stupid. Laura Johnston, what did this guy do? 
Yeah, this is bizarre. I have no idea why these guys are parachuting into downtown Cleveland in the middle of the night, no less. A 35-year-old man crashed in the side of a parking garage, the Reserve Square apartment parking garage, ended up suspended 40 feet in the air until firefighters rescued him. And some guy got it all on camera. Uh, his four fa- friends landed safely in the park next door, uh, but he broke his ankle when he got entangled um, in his chute on the side. But yeah, it's like 2 a.m. Like who takes a plane out in the middle of like a Saturday night and decides that downtown Cleveland is where they want it? I mean, not, none of it makes sense. Well, I mean, one, parachuting into the middle of a downtown in the dark with tall buildings and electrical equipment on top and all sorts of hazards. That's just crazy. I mean, that's a it's risky right. thing to do. But, but the video shows him. I mean, he doesn't just kind of bump into the building. He glides and slams right into it. It's it's a jarring video. And then he sucked there. He broke his ankle and had to go to Metro Health. And, I, you know, we're trying to talk to the guy to find out what were you thinking? It just it's one of those. Why? Why would you say, hey, I got an idea. Let's parachute into downtown Cleveland in the dark. That'll be a cool thing. I right. Mean, you know, where where does the reality check come in saying, you know, that could be pretty dangerous. Well, someone had to take them up in this. You would assume they need a license to, like, let parachuters out or something. I, I don't know. We, Adam Freese is probably going to keep looking into this. Oh, today. no. We're, yeah, we're, we're yeah. hot on the trail. We'll try and talk to these guys. I think we have a line on um, on the guy who got injured. So hopefully we'll talk to him and get more. It's this week in the CLE. What are St. Vincent Charity Medical Center and University Hospitals doing with nearly $3 million from the federal government to fight addiction. Jane Cahoon, a lot of the uh, social ills that we normally cover kind of been forgotten while we've chased the coronavirus and social upheaval and the antics in Columbus. But the the coronavirus has exacerbated the distress that a lot of people who suffer from mental illness feel. So this grant is kind of important. What are they doing with it? Yeah, this this seems to be really good good news. They, the money is basically going to help them train more doctors to treat addiction. They got $2.89 million from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and they're going to use it to increase the number of psychiatrists and physicians who are board certified to treat addictions. They're going to more than double their current fellowship opportunities, and they're going to get this money over five years and create what they're calling a Northeast Ohio Center for Addiction Research, Prevention, and Education Collaborative. And it's going to enable them to train doctors from various disciplines like psychiatry, internal medicine, family medicine, pediatrics, OBGYNs, and emergency medicine uh, to to train them to also treat addiction. The need's pretty urgent, right? Because as we saw, once the coronavirus hit, the number of uh, addiction deaths spiked again because people were were turning to uh, to drugs to relieve, I guess, some of the stress. It was mostly after the state reopened that we saw that. So, I mean, this is more of a long-term thing, but there is an urgent need. So it's, a, like you said, it's a good news story. It's this week in the CLE. Here's a short one. Who's the new warden at the Cuyahoga County Jail? Laura Johnston, tell us a bit. 
Michelle Henry, she is the assistant warden at the Lorraine Correctional Institution State Prison right now. She's actually the first woman hired to take over the problematic jail. She's going to make about $96,000 in her position. She's got 25 years of corrections experience. Well, the men keep screwing it up. So maybe the thing to do here is <laughs> I know, right? let's go. Yeah, let's let's go I mean, th- this jail has been embattled as hell. We've had several wardens that were just complete flunk out people that that did not do well. So (laughs) maybe the answer is let's give up on getting these long-term guys and find a woman that's got a long record. It'll be interesting to see how she does. The jail has continued to be a source of controversy for Cuyahoga County government. We wish her well. It's this week in the CLE. All right, that does it for another podcast. I uh, I have a feeling today will be a newsy day with the governor's briefing. Right, Jane? Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I always hesitate to predict, you know, but, but he is having three uh, doctors from pediatric hospitals there. So you just got to believe we're, we're leading up to something on the schools. Well, the scary thing was in the last briefing, he always does the hint before the news. He Mm -hmm. hinted that he could set a statewide policy and you just wonder, okay, now we're going to have the three pediatric guys. That like only in regards to a question. So I don't know that he had intended that is to be like a, here it comes, guys. Like, here's your little preview. Yeah, his spokesman says it's it's just an update, not to, to go all crazy. But, you know, he lays the groundwork for these things. Yeah, we'll see. Okay. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody for listening to This Week in the CLE. We'll return tomorrow when we'll have Chris Warnowski back in the house. <laughs>